when it comes to body image, I remember there was a week I was getting on a scale every single day and I would see the number be like basically the same exact thing every day. And then I would notice on some days I would see one thing and on the next day I would see another thing. And in my head, my body is getting bigger and smaller, bigger and smaller based on nothing but like my emotions and stress level. And just realizing that like, I am not seeing what's real because what's real is like a hard physical thing that's not going to change from Monday to Tuesday. But in my head, I'm a hundred different sizes from Monday to Tuesday. Hi, and welcome to the Feeling Full podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guests to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without dieting or intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, this show is for you. Today, our guest is Lisa Schlossberg. Since Lisa was five, she's been struggling with her weight. Decades of dieting, she found herself at 300 pounds when she was only 17 years old. Lisa was once at an amusement park and after waiting four hours to get onto a roller coaster ride with her friends, she was sent away, them telling her that she was too large for the ride. That really hit home for her and helped her change her life. Today, we're going to hear how Lisa ended up losing 150 pounds, what she's learned from years of feeling completely invisible to others, to everyone wanting her attention, and what changed when she started to feel her feelings. Lisa is a health coach and a licensed social worker and now helps other people deal with their trauma so they can live healthier lives. Let's just jump right in. I'm really happy that you're here with me today. Ever since I met you a year and a half ago at Omega Institute, I was really blown away by the way you shared on stage. And it was, you were so authentic. It was right after John um, Gabriel start, stopped, you know, shared his story. And then his brother got up, then you got up, and I got up, and we all were sharing our stories. And I remember hearing your perspective on what it was like to you know, not feel like you were you know, controlled by food anymore and the freedom that you experienced around it. And I remember feeling like, wow, this woman's got some knowledge that I, I need to get. I remember, I remember approaching you afterwards and we got into a long conversation about that. And we just you know, stayed in touch since. And I guess I'm really happy to have you so we can share this with all the listeners. And I also, yeah, let's just start from the beginning. So if we were to go back in your childhood, we're sitting around your dinner table, table growing up, you're eight or nine years old. Walk me through, what's, what's going on? Wow, that is such a good question. And no one has ever asked that. Like just the visual of that. So, okay, what was it like? By the time I'm eight or nine, I already know that I'm eating too much and I should be eating less. So what is it like is maybe I go for another serving of something and there's a glance or a nudge or a, do you really need to eat all that? Or are you sure you're still that hungry? Or are you sure you don't want some fruit instead? Or so that by eight or nine, and I know this because I found recently my Weight Watchers like card or whatever. And I was nine years old. It was somewhere between eight and nine. So I know that, you know, that's why I'm like, this is such a great question because that's when there started to be, there was some conscious like thought about it, some awareness of like, this is where my life is at this point. So that's what I'm aware of the most. And I think it's interesting too, because usually a question like this is framed like, what were your parents' eating habits? And what did you learn from them at the dinner table? And for me, you can already hear my answer is so much more psychological than it is physical. It was so much less about the eating habits and the food on the table and so much more about the messages and the signals and the, and the feelings around all of that stuff. And so that's, to me, at this point, the most important thing about what was going on when I was eight and nine years old was I was already learning. I was doing something wrong and my body was bad. And that was the message that I was taking away from every meal. So it didn't matter very much to me what was on the table. It wasn't about the food. It was about what it all meant. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. Someone would look at you or give you like a snicker, like, yeah, you don't need to eat that. What, did, what was going on in your eight or nine-year-old head? Yeah. Something that I, and you actually heard this last summer, but something that I teach to my clients is called the division of responsibility. This is all coming from Ellen Satter. So this is not my original work, but the reason that I'm sharing this is because the division of responsibility is a technique for treating and preventing disordered eating in children. 
So anyone who has kids that's listening to this wants to hear this part. That is the parents have a job and the child has a job. So the parent's job is to buy the food. You're the one making decisions in the grocery store. You're the one serving the food, deciding when meal times are for kids. Three snack, I mean, three meals, two snacks a day is recommended. And the parent has to eat the same food as the kid because everyone's intention now is health. So why am I saying all this? Because the kid's side, the kid's job is to decide if they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat. And so that gets tricky with under eating and overeating and picky eating because the parents have this intention of getting the right food in their kid and the right amount of food in the kid. But it's the kid's job to say, I'm hungry or I'm not hungry, or this is how much I need to eat. And this is how little I need to eat right now. Kids know how to self-regulate. They know how to eat when they're hungry, stop when they're full. And what we have to do is really get that judgment, that shame, that guilt, the should at the dinner table. That's what we need to get rid of and just let the body do its thing. So I know this now, you know, as a health coach, as a social worker, as all these things. But when I go back in time and I think about me at eight years old, the first time I heard the division of responsibility, I was like in tears. It was actually at Omega at John's retreat through Dr. Patricia Reba, who he wrote his book with. And I remember being like, this makes sense out of my entire childhood because it was so not about the food and so much about collecting all of that shame and guilt. And so that's what it was like for me at eight years old was I didn't really understand like what or why or how, you know, but I knew that what I was doing was bad and something needed to be fixed or solved or something. And so I would say that's the answer to the question is what happens when you collect those nudges and those glances and those comments is it's just shame and guilt and fear, you know, and that's why the division of responsibility really is effective in helping children with their relationship with food is because it comes down to safety and danger. And you know, this about the brain science of it is when a kid eight years old, like myself is sitting at the dinner table, feeling shame, what it comes down to in terms of the brain science is it's unsafe, it's fear. And so that's why for me, it became, I will wait because kids are brilliant. They can figure out how to manipulate things and control things and not maliciously, but brilliantly. How can I eat in safety? And that's what I would do. So for me around eight, nine years old, which is where the habit started, that was, I would wait until I saw not just the TV was off. I mean, not just the lights were off, but the TV was off in my parents' room because that meant then around midnight, I could go into the kitchen and eat in safety, in peace. And no one's going to tell me that it's too much or that I shouldn't. And that was, I would say, the beginning of, of that cycle for years. But that's a long-winded answer to your question. No, that's, that's, that's brilliant. And I think that what you mentioned about child to ch- children, you know, deciding for themselves what to eat, that's training an eight or nine-year-old to be an intuitive eater, right? And not just yeah. be wrong or right or eat your plate or all the things, you know, that we've all heard growing up. So I think it's brilliant to think about. And to your point about sneaking into the kitchen, I really, I'm really curious, what was that like for you at, you know, 10 years old is waiting for your, you know, your parents' light and TV to go off to sneak, mm. to sneak your little self into the kitchen to get yeah. some food? The thing that I remember the most about it was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember so much about <laughs> even like what happened after that. You know, I just remember being like, now I can go. And it's, you know, what I'm thinking of what's popping into my head right now is the intro to the book that John and Patricia wrote together, that it talked about his experience at fat camp growing up and the the cycle of how many kids would like pack all this weight on during the year and then come back to the same camp and try to get it off. And they would get heavier and heavier every year. And what he was talking about was how kids would literally be, they would just find all these brilliant ways of like hiding food and sneaking candy and like all of this. And so that's the, that's the kind of like energy that comes to mind when I think of that was just this like urgent energy around how am I going to make it happen? And knowing that if I just stay up long enough, I'll get what I need and get the need met. And then, and I don't really remember, (laughs) I don't remember very much about it, but I, I remember that. You remember waiting, and I think it's like the addict mind, you know, waiting right? for its fix. You know, it's like, and I, and I think anybody struggling with food listening can relate to this. When you're, you know, waiting for to eat another portion when someone's not there, or you're waiting for the grocery store to open, or you have that urge to eat, even if it's healthy food, that is that we, we remember that moment more than the actual food itself, right? Because it's rarely 
it's really about the actual food. Absolutely. So you are going through, so you're 10, 11 years old and you're starting to put on weight. Yeah. What's yeah. going on in your life at this time? So I really started putting on weight when I was five. And we know this for a few different reasons. One is that's when I would say like the biggest family trauma happened, which was my little sister. I was five years old. My parents had my little sister born prematurely who passed away after five months. So when I was five, that happened. And now, you know, in hindsight, it made a lot of sense to me that the five-year-old just kind of got lost in the shuffle of like grieving and depression and sadness. My parents were absolutely torn apart by that, obviously. And so that's where I was at five. And so more recently in the more recent years, my mom found a picture of me and she handed it to me and was like, this is when you really started gaining weight. And I was like, is it 1998? Because I know that's when I was five years old and I already have put the pieces together of my life and childhood and my relationship with food. And so I was like, it's 1998. And so she turned the picture over and it was 1998. And that's exactly what it was. We know that I started using food emotionally to cope with a trauma and a grief that I had absolutely no means of coping with. When you're five years old, I mean, you don't have the words. There is just no capacity for that. So, I mean, I know now that that's really how food kind of got its role in my life in an emotional, psychological sense. So that's why by eight, nine, I'm already in Weight Watchers because I already have a weight issue. So by 10, 11, I've tried Weight Watchers. I've been dragged to dietitians and nutritionists and everyone is just telling me the same thing. You know, it's like, this is what you're doing and this is what you should be doing. And in hindsight, I understand with just my education in psychology and child development that the way that I coped with all of this was by dissociating. I remember like I wrote recently about what it was like to go to Weight Watchers at such a young age. And the thing that stuck out to me the most is I remember stepping on the scale and just telling myself, you're not here. You're not here. You're not really here. This isn't really happening. You don't really need to be here. So for me, it wasn't like I was 10 years old being like, I have a weight issue. What do I do? I was like, like just anything to keep this from my awareness. Do not put this inside of like my stream of consciousness. And so that's the way that I personally coped with it was just pretending it wasn't even real and nothing ever lasted more than a week or two. That's what I remember about every diet was, I mean, I would get to a point where I remember I have memories of like my mom just trying her best, only doing everything that she was told to do at the time. But I remember like getting in the car once having just been at my friend's house. And I told her that I like, I ate something like, I don't remember even what it was. And she was like, why are you like, why? Like you're on a diet, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember being like, I forgot. Like, I forgot that I was supposed to be on a diet, you know, because I'm nine. And like, <laughs> like, so that's kind of what it was. <laughs> that's what it was for me around like that age. Wow. I mean, I can completely relate to that. You know, I, I think I started going to Weight Watchers with my mom when I was nine or 10 years old as well. So yeah, it's funny. I went back to a Weight Watchers recently to just, I saw, I saw one in Michigan when I was visiting um, my parents. And I walked in just to kind of peek in to see what's going on. I'm like, you know, I walk in, open the front door, like no one stops me. You know, there's a bunch of people standing behind the desk and these massive scales. I don't know if they got bigger. I just don't remember them being so big, but these like massive scales that are in front of the counter. And to the yeah. left is like a, you know, middle-aged, you know, 50, 60-year-old man with like a row of like 50, you know, 50 seats and only like six people in them. And yeah. I just remember as a kid, a 10-year-old, sitting in one of those chairs, surrounded yes. by dozens of adults. I'm like, I just snapped a bunch of photos. No one said anything to me and I walked out. But I thought that was, it's kind of ironic. The same thing is still happening. And <sighs> yeah, it was just, it's all, all connecting to the brain, right? All the, like you're, you're getting a nutrition lecture at a support group. Like that's not what people yeah. need. People need to connect right. with each other to be able to feel what's coming up for them. And this leads me to my next question which is how do feelings play a role in your life growing up? Oh, so the one thing that I want to actually say before I answer that is because I know that there are parents listening to this, or I hope that there are parents listening to this and not just from a parental standpoint, but also just in understanding ourselves. I think what I want to say is that the experiences that you and I had 
at Weight Watchers, that's trauma. That's real trauma. That's a traumatic experience that we are still feeling and thinking about and talking about. Why was I taken to Weight Watchers? Because my pediatrician told my mom to do that. Like I had a doctor's note to bring me into Weight Watchers because I was so young. So I blame my parents 0% for any of what you know transpired back then. But I do think it's really important to put it through a trauma-informed lens. That is, especially because it's about brain science and it is about safety and danger. There is a reason that I would step on the scale and dissociate and just pretend that I wasn't there because that's our way of coping with a traumatic experience. So there is an abundant amount of reasons to not bring an eight or nine or 10-year-old or any kind of kid into a weight loss program, but it's so much more than the body. It is actually about that memory and experience causing its own stress, let's say, throughout the lifetime. I just think it's so important. And that's why I think the division of responsibility is like everything to me, especially when it comes to kids, because it's not just how do we stop disordered eating, but it's how do we prevent and avoid a lot of trauma that is just not necessary because that's what dieting as a kid is. So that's just important for me. Now, (laughs) the role of emotions, ah, feeling is everything. So in my life, I pretended that I didn't feel anything. And for a very long time, I thought feelings were stupid. I thought therapy was a joke. I thought I was really strong and tough and I would make it through my life that way. And what strong and tough meant to me was just never being vulnerable about anything. And that is the way that I functioned for the first, I would say like 20 years of my life, 18 to 20 years of my life. It all began with my sister's death. I know that when I was five years old, the way that I handled that was just kind of lock it down. She never came home from the hospital. So what I told myself was you can't lose what you never had. Your feelings are not valid. There is no one to blame for this. It was just a lot of reasons to just stuff it all down using food. And so that's what I was doing. And that's the way that I learned how to cope with everything. So not just my sister's death, but also my obesity growing up. It was just pretend it's not there. And I would say that was the way that I felt, but also didn't feel really anything growing up was everything uncomfortable, everything that hurt, everything that scared me, everything that made me sad. It was just stuffed away and down and I didn't talk about anything. And then after a lot more, I would say, dysfunction in the home, when I was 14, I was forced to go to therapy and talk about all of this stuff going on. And that I could do. That I could do because I I really was expressing a lot of anger and rage. I had no control over what was going on in my home. And that that I think in again in hindsight was almost like a gateway for me. It was like an intro to like feeling emotion. And at that time it was just a lot of anger and a lot of like teen angst and stuff. For me, everything like emotions did not have a role in my life until my weight loss. <laughs> So I would say like, for me, that's where it all gets very interesting. And yeah. Did, did, did you lose the weight? You lost 150 pounds and then started dealing with your emotions or did you actually start dealing with the emotions and lost the weight? No, I lost the weight. And then, and I'm so glad you said this earlier because so I lost the weight the same way that I did everything else in my life, which was no pain, no gain. <laughs> right, so right. I was, I right. was everything that we would recommend against today. I was like the most, as, as extreme a diet as like, as it could be. I started actually with Jenny Craig. So also like things that I would not (laughs) suggest, but I started on a weight loss program like that, which was what I called at the time dieting for dummies. The reason that I chose it was because I refused to go back to Weight Watchers. I was not counting points anymore. I couldn't count anything. I literally wanted to be as mindless as possible. Don't make me part of this process. Just tell me what to do. And so I was like a robot, just kind of, you know, eating the microwave meals three times a day for at least like six to eight months or so. And my head was not in it. Like I was literally not a part of the process. Psychologically speaking, I was forcing my body to do a thing. And I was in the mindset when I started that was, I'm going to get the weight off. And then I'll be done and I'll be perfect. And I'll go back to eating everything that I want to eat. There was no awareness at all. So I was thinking of it as a strictly physical process. 
I just, I was at a point where like I was 300 pounds when I was 17. So I had a lot of moments where obviously like I had a lot of reasons to lose weight, but that's when I started to not be able to fit. Like I would say from like 15 or like 13 to 17 was when I started to not be able to ride a roller coaster. One of the most traumatic events that ever happened in my life was waiting four hours online to ride Superman at Six Flags and then getting kicked off of it in front of my friends because it wouldn't fit. So I couldn't ride roller coasters. And that's when I stopped like fitting into, you know, booths at restaurants and airplanes. And, and there was one moment I had where I was squeezing myself into a bathroom stall when I was 17. And that was, I would say the closest thing I had to like an aha moment because it was like, you're 17 and you need to go to the bathroom. Like this is like a real issue. And if you don't do something about this soon, your life is going to look like this. Like you won't be able to get on airplanes and you won't be able to ride roller coasters. And like, what are you supposed to do? And it was never, and this I think is really important that it was never this like turning against myself being like, I'm not good enough and I have to lose weight. There was something that I wrote in a paper in college that was so important to me. That was just a sentence that said, I didn't really care what size the chair was. I just wanted to fit into it. And that's where I was at at like 17 was like, the size doesn't matter. I just need to be able to fit in this world that I live in. And I need to do something about that because I'm the only one that can do anything about that. So you're in the bathroom stall, you you real you have this like, you know, aha moment, you know, somewhat of a rock bottom. And you make a decision at that point that there's something needs to get done for me to live in yeah. this world in a healthy way or period. Yeah. What do yeah. you do next? Literally call Jenny Craig. That was the first thing. It was I actually that happened, that bathroom stall moment was in Australia on my way to New Zealand. And I remember the flight right after that from Australia to New Zealand was the first time in my life that I had to ask for a seatbelt extender. But I was taking a gap year. I graduated high school in three years and I took a gap year instead of going straight into college. So it was like, instead of my senior year of high school, I was traveling, which was amazing, but also extremely difficult because I was 300 pounds. And so I was always this like super independent, super like, I don't need anyone. I'm going to go travel the world by myself. And that part was great. But when I got to New Zealand was when it was like, okay, I can actually do this or I should actually do this or something. And that was when I got weighed and translated from kilograms to pounds was 302 pounds. Like that was, that was the day. That was the beginning. That's really interesting because, you know, part of creating new habits and positive habit change, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is like, you know, your environment plays a big role, right? So if, for example, if you're living in the same house that you, you binge eat all the time in, and then you decide you're going to eat healthy, it's quite hard because your brain has all these pattern recognitions of what yeah. the closest chocolate bar is or the coldest bottle of Diet Coke, you know? So, you know, do you think that moving to New Zealand and having a fresh start played a role in your ability to actually lose the weight and keep it off? hundred percent. And I'm so glad that you're saying all this because at the time I remember being in this headspace of, I'm so excited to travel the world. I just wanted to travel and do something really cool and get out of high school and live my life and see the world. And at the time I remember my therapist who I thought, you know, she was so amazing. But at the time I was so committed to not letting her in. But I remember my therapist being like, you want to escape so bad that you are willing to graduate high school in three years and take a gap year and go not just across the country, but literally across the world. I was in New York and going to New Zealand was like as far as I could possibly go. And so at the time, you know, I'm like, that's not true at all. But I think there's so much to be said for that. So what happened for me was I started in New Zealand. I think that had so much to do with it. And but for me, it was not just, again, about the environment in a physical sense. Where's the chocolate bar and the Diet Coke? It is that. But for me, it was so, there was so much psychological tension at home in that house with my family that for me, it was like, that's what I needed to get out. Because then I started to really understand a little bit later. So what happened was I spent a few months in New Zealand doing that. I lost some weight and I started college. And I was at the University of Michigan. 
and living my life. And freshman year, I was like, I have a fridge in my dorm room. Like I can't do Jenny Craig. So I did it. I kind of just kind of like flopped around freshman year of college, just trying to like get my bearings and stuff. So I was still, I lost, I don't know. It was probably like 280 at that point, 285. But I kind of maintained that for like a year ish gained maybe like five to 10 pounds or something back. But my mind was not on weight loss at all. Really. It was about like living my life. Then to speak to your point on environment being everything. Then I moved into my sorority house. I joined a sorority freshman year. I moved into my sorority house sophomore year. That's when I lost 150 pounds. (laughs) So I understand that in hindsight, again, why? At the time it felt like I don't know. It's kind of like I'm in college and I'm being responsible for myself and seeing myself as an adult. And I'm the one that has to feed myself and all of that stuff is coming up. And more importantly, on a psychological, spiritual sense, I felt safe. I felt home. I felt loved. I felt accepted. I felt safe. And I was living in a house of 60 other girls who I'm just, I mean, we're so part of that journey for me. That was, that's what felt like made it possible for me was I made those friends when I was 300 pounds freshman year. That's what got me into that sorority. I was me and I was seen and accepted for who I was. And once I was living in that house, a hundred and something pounds came off that year. So I think now when I tell the story, it makes so much sense to me. Why sophomore year of college did that happen? That's why that happened. So the environment definitely played a role, it seems, which makes total sense. And what's interesting as well is you are around lots of new, you know, you're living in a house of 60 people, so lots of new people, right? And all of a sudden you have what seems like a nice support system, as well as feeling independent and an adult. You also have this new support system when, you know, I'm sure at you know that age, you know, that young adults are a little nicer than 10-year-old kids calling you all types of names. So what was that like to have, you know, 60, was it 60 women or is it yeah. guys as well? 60 women. So what was it like to have 60 women in the process of your weight loss? What was that like? Yeah. So this is, I would say, where it starts to get interesting because on one hand, like the way that I was going through it, it felt like I had a huge support system. And I did, I did. And then on the other hand, it's like, where does the intention to lose weight become unhealthy? And when do 60 women start supporting an unhealthy habit? And so to no, you know, to no fault of their own, being part of my support system in the beginning was really healthy and really helpful. And then little did really anybody know that it was getting to a place of really dangerous restriction. And what I needed was not more support and more encouragement, but someone to be like, are you okay? You're not eating very much. So it kind of did both of those things. But I would say in the beginning, like I wrote a letter to my pledge class in my sorority when I lost a hundred pounds that eventually it was published on like thought catalog and kind of made its way around like some of the big 10 schools for a little bit, because what it was, was literally a thank you note to these to everyone that I lived with at my sorority, because I felt like I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Because every single day it was people just being supportive and encouraging and excited and proud and all of that. But then again, like I really want to voice this point that it got to a point for me where I was losing weight like rapidly. So I lost, I don't know, like a hundred pounds, like some point during that year. But toward the end of that year, this is when I started getting like physically sick. Like I was in a place of starvation and malnourishment because I, after I was done with Jenny Craig, I mean, not done with Jenny Craig, but I got to a point where I was like, okay, I know the basics of how this works. What I took away from Jenny Craig was every meal is a few hundred calories and the less you weigh, the less you eat. So I was like, great. I don't need to pay anyone for this advice anymore. I can just take this in my own hands. And I just started really eating like as little as I could. And so it got to a point where I was definitely working out way too much. I was definitely not eating enough. It was March. I remember it was right before spring break of sophomore year. And I had lost maybe like 120 pounds or something. And 
I went home back to New York for the weekend because I remember calling my parents crying. And it was very confusing at the time because I really didn't understand it. Like, but I remember calling them and just being like, I have to get out of here. Like I have to, I have to not be here because the way that I felt at that point, and again, I was in a sorority in the University of Michigan. So it's a really big place. And I was meeting a lot of people. And at this point, I was not only having the experience of walking past, you know, like a window and having no idea who I am, like just having zero connection at all to my physical body. But now I was also like a poster child for weight loss. And everywhere that I went, people, it was like people knew me as the girl that lost a lot of weight. And everywhere that I went, whether it was like friends of mine or acquaintances or strangers, literally, I would just be approached about, about weight loss. And I remember calling my parents and just being like, I am nothing else. Like, I'm not being seen as like a human. I'm seen as like a before and after picture. And it was really starting to like mess with me because it was again, traumatic of just getting lost in that shuffle of like, I just felt like I was a body and all anyone wanted to talk to me about was food. And it was like, I'm still a human. And so I remember going home and just like, I didn't, I didn't know how to explain it at the time. Cause I remember being like, I'm not complaining about all the compliments. They're nice, you know, but I remember at a certain point, one story that really stuck with me was I went out to like a frat party. Like we did every weekend and one of my friends was hanging out with me all night and so many people just kept coming up to me. You look amazing. You look great. You look, what are you doing? And I remember her at one point just looking at me being like, is this what it's like to be you? And I was like, yeah, like it's really overwhelming and really exhausting. And like, ah, it's just a lot. And so that was the thing about, it was like, it was so much praise and it was so much reward and it felt really good. And also we get really lost in that, you know, and it can really take on like a life of its own and become its own addiction which I think it, it did certainly for a certain point, you know, like anything can is, it feels really good, but, oh, it was so hard and sad and scary and lonely. So what was it like to actually go from, you know, being the woman who couldn't get on the, the roller coaster ride to being the woman who couldn't get in the bathroom to being somebody who's everyone is complimenting and now you're getting all this positive attention in your life and getting approached all the time. and all of a sudden, people wanting to get your attention more than before. What was that like for your self-concept? Like I said, I didn't, like, <laughs> I was so naive at the time because, like, before weight loss, I remember being like, I'll just be smaller, but my whole life will be the same. Like, I just, like, literally, I just want to fit. And so I wanted, like, I didn't want anything more than that. I was like, I'll keep, everything else is great. So when everything started changing, it was like, wait, what? Like, I didn't think that all of this would happen or that I would get this much attention or that people cared this much. Like, it was always like, I don't know. I just, I think I cared so little about all of that stuff that once all the bells and whistles started popping up, it was like, whoa. And I remember really even actually at the time, I remember taking <laughs> sociology 101. And the reason I laugh is because like at the time I thought it was so silly. And then I went to grad school for social work. So it's like, I remember sitting in social, in sociology and we were learning about oppression and privilege. And I remember learning, you know, like men are treated this way and women are treated this way. And we have racial majorities and minorities and all these different like groups. And I remember being like, this is exactly what's happening in terms of body size. And I remember going in and meeting with my professor and being like, I'm experiencing this right now in real time that I used to be in this like social group that was obese and oppressed in this world, just not even visible when you're walking down the street. People just don't even look in your direction to being in this privileged place of thin and seen and heard and valued in a very different way. And I had no concept of the fact that that existed in our world or in our society because I was never anything but overweight. 
I had only lived my life in that way. So that by the time I'm 20, 21, now being not only thin, but also a female who's 21 years old on a college campus, I, cu- I literally, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Like I, I couldn't. And to speak to the point of where it got emotional and where it started to get kind of confusing was it was around this time, all my weight came off again, very quickly. I basically talked to a nutritionist who says to me, you're starving and you need to eat more. And this is why you lost your period. This is why your hair is falling out. This is why you can't sleep. This is why you're freezing all the time. So some of the physical symptoms started to make sense to me. But when I had to now eat a little bit more and exercise a little bit less, that's when all of the emotions started coming up. Just like you said before, just like any addict, if you've been numbing your whole life with a substance, for me, it was food, and then you stop being able to do that. So now I was at a point where it was like my hands were tied. I couldn't overeat. I couldn't undereat. And now all of it was coming up. And so I started going back to that same therapist the things that were coming up in therapy were like the world. It was like poverty and racism and how do we live in a world that is so unfair and hurtful and this and that. And why is it that I get so much attention when I lose all this weight, but no one was even seeing me before? Like, why is this the world that we live in? It was a complete full-blown existential crisis because I had literally no idea what I would find out here with my eyes open and all of this weight off my body. And so that's when. I remember having this realization that, and this is what I was saying at John's retreat at Omega, there was that point where I realized that all the things that I was crying about, all the things that were making me sad, all of the feelings that I had after spending again, a whole childhood of, I don't have feelings and I'm fine and I don't need help. And now everything was emotional, commercials, TV, the rain, babies, weddings, like everything was making me cry. And then I remember realizing all of this stuff was always here. This world has always been this way. Poverty, racism, injustice, all of this has always existed. It's just that you were dissociating and you were living as though it wasn't real. And so that's, I mean, that's what my weight loss did for me was literally open my eyes to the world that I'm living in. And I had to deal with all of, I would say, the tidal wave of emotion that came with that and just really getting my bearing in reality. Ultimately, that's what I think that was for me. I have two follow-up questions there. I mean, that's, that's really interesting, the way you connected your experience in college to what you were learning in school. It's kind of what was happening for you in real time. And I guess on the other side of that, you had to deal with the emotions. At what point did feeling these emotions become a positive play in your life? I love your questions. You're so good at this. I would say that when I started to like, I'm trying to think of the chronological timeline of like when I stumble upon John Gabriel and how some of that starts to play a role. And ultimately, I think when I started to feel that it was positive, like I think it was always positive, you know, even if it didn't feel that great at the time, it was like, I was telling the truth. I was coming out of, you know, this, yeah. No, that's really interesting to know. And I think it's important just to stop on that for a second. Just, just say that again. What, what did you just say? That it was always positive. Like and all think, of it was positive. <laughs> right. And I, I think it's so important because, you know, you think that feeling is scary, right? Feeling is like this scary thing that you can't do. And you're using food to numb whatever emotions are coming up. And what you just said is that even when the emotions were difficult to feel and it, the world was all completely overwhelming for you, you know, everything that was going on that was causing you emotional stress, you actually still somewhat enjoyed this sensation of feeling it wasn't so bad, even if you had to eat sometimes because it got too overwhelming for your system, it was still worthwhile to feel. 100%. Yeah. It's really important. Yeah. And I remember even at the time, you know, I didn't always feel this way, but there were certainly times where I was like, I was getting upset, but then I was like, wait, I'm feeling like I'm human. I'm doing that thing that I spent my entire life not doing. So even there were definitely times where even when it started to get like hard and scary and all those things, it was like the only alternative is numbing and dissociating, avoiding, escaping, and just not telling the truth. 
And, you know, as Nicole Sachs is always saying, life is a choice between what hurts and what hurts worse, who works with chronic pain. But the whole idea of being, you are either going to be numbing and avoiding and just blinding yourself to the unfortunate reality, or you're going to be feeling pain because that's a component of the human experience. And that's just it. And so for me, yeah, it, it is all positive because ultimately you're teaching yourself how to cope in healthier ways and how to just be more honest and more truthful and authentic and real. And so, yeah, I would say all of it is positive, but the first thing that comes to me in terms of like, when did I start to like actually think and feel that way? I would say when I started really paying attention to what John Gabriel was saying, because the first time I heard John in Hungry for Change, he was saying things like diets don't work. And I was like, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I just lost all this weight on his diet. Of course they work. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I had to like yo-yo diet for like a year and a half and then be like, the bald man has ideas. So I like went back and rediscovered and read all the books. And that's when I was like, this man is the only person that has ever been able to identify. Like it was just, it resonated. It was the only thing that resonated and it resonated so deeply that then I started basically just, I felt like I was at a point where it was clear to me that I could either keep doing this like diet food thing because that was going on for a while. I lost all my weight. And then for, then I had to eat a little bit more, exercise a little bit less. And that turned into yo-yo dieting for like a year. I was gaining that weight back slowly, but surely trying not to, but that's when I like really heard John Gabriel and was willing to kind of give him just listen to really. And so why do I say that in response to this question? Just because that's when it started to be like, your emotions are playing a role in all of this. And it felt to me like my emotions were like the answer that I was looking for because I was coming at it from a very like left brain, again, like no pain, no gain kind of attitude. I need to understand the science of why am I not able to keep the weight off? How is this working? And so I'm doing all this kind of research on why diets don't work. And I'm seeing that clearly. I've experimented in myself so far. And then I hear John talking about things like meditation and visualization and stress reduction and all like just a whole new world. Right. And I was like, this makes sense of everything. A hundred percent. And I had a very similar experience with John Gabriel's work as well. And in the first person that I heard say, you know, it's a lifestyle change, stop dieting and you're going to lose weight and keep it off. And I was like, wow, this guy has really some, some great ideas around that, that I resonated with. And it's, it's really fascinating to think about because, you know, back to the emotion ideas, like, you lost most of your weight without feeling and then started working on this and, you know, gained some, lost some, gained some, lost some. You know, I had a very similar experience. I lost my first hundred pounds with also like kind of, you know, with this rigor and then gained some, lost some, gained some, lost some, and then eventually would end up losing the last 50 pounds. You know, I probably kept off like 80 and then lost another 50 when I was actually working through the emotions. And I get this a lot. Yeah. People will say to me, it's like, well, maybe I'll just go on a diet. You know, I'll eat lots of these chocolate bars or drink lots of these shakes or whatever it is. And then at some point, I'll be done, I'll lose my weight, and then I'll start doing the real work. And I'll meditate, I'll journal, and I'll work on my habits. And, you know, it's interesting because you can do that. It's not pleasant, and you can do that. It's very unhealthy. And you can start feeling your emotions. And after you learn how to feel your emotions, the weight will literally just drop off. Like, literally, yeah. I'm coaching somebody after a few months of learning how to feel her emotions. All of a sudden, month after month, she consistently has lost 10 or 11 pounds for already 100%. three months and she's going on her fourth. And it's amazing to see that it was yeah. just like the tools of learning yeah. how to feel. Yes. And it's fascinating that you had a very similar, similer experience. And this leads me yeah. to the next question for you, which is when you lost all this weight, you had you know, this major swing of 150 pounds. And what was it like for you to see your body in such a short amount of time, like yeah. half the size? I, like the reason that I just, I'm like, oh, like I, I still feel her like the, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old self. I so feel for her because it was so, I want to say almost like scary, you know, like I would like look in the mirror and like, yes, there was that, there was that like immediate dopamine hit, right. Of like, I did it and this is me and I look like this. And, and there was that certainly, but for me, what I felt more than that was disconnected. I just felt like 
it's not me. How is that me? I was overweight my entire life. So getting to a point, I remember at one point, and again, I just, oh, I feel for her because I was at, it must've been my sophomore junior year. It was like the, it must've been, had to be the end of my sophomore, beginning of my junior year. And I remember we were at a, like a football tailgate or something. And I remember walking with my friend and I just remember saying to her, do I look like normal yet? Like, am I there? Cause I can't see it and I don't really get it, but everyone's telling me that I'm like at like a normal size. Like if we all take like a group picture, like, do I just like fit in? Like, am I there? And I remember her just being like, you are so there. You need to not worry about it anymore. Like you're so there. That's what it was like. It was like outsourcing that opinion because it was like, I'm not seeing what's real. So I need you to just tell me where I'm at. And when it comes to body image, like I remember there was a week literally where I was weighing at this, at the time I would weigh myself every single day. And I remember like I was getting on a scale every single day and I would see the number be like basically the same exact thing every day. And then I would notice that like I, on some days I would see one thing and on the next day I would see another thing. And in my head, my body is getting bigger and smaller, bigger and smaller based on nothing but like my emotions and stress level. And just seeing and just realizing that like, I am not seeing what's real because what's real is like a hard, you know, physical thing that's not going to change from Monday to Tuesday. But in my head, I'm a hundred different sizes from Monday to Tuesday. And it, oh, it was, it was hard. It was hard. What was your process to go about learning to really accept yourself and like appreciate your body? For me, I think it has a lot to do with how I started, meaning my, like I said, I don't care what size the chair is. I just want to fit. And so for me, it was much less about, I need to be this number or this size before I'm acceptable for myself. It was like, I didn't think of it so much as a measure of self-worth. I felt like it was a survival thing. So I think there was like that component of it, but ultimately getting to a point where I had to pull myself out of my head the same way that I had to do around dieting. It was like, every single bone in my body was like, go on another diet. You know, it'll be different this time. You just have to work harder. And there was that part of me that was like, insanity would be doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I had to like pull myself out of that. And the same was true with seeing myself in the mirror. It was like, babe, you're seeing a different thing every hour. Instead of looking at this as what, you know, this is good enough, this is not good enough. Just understand that you're not gonna find good enough in the mirror, no matter what. So it's completely unrelated to what you look like. So for me, it was just, oh, and at that time, please, I mean, I was like, I was still half the size that I was like a year before. So for me, it was like critiquing my body was like the dumbest thing I could possibly, like it was just like, I couldn't even imagine not liking my body because I felt like it wasn't even mine yet. You know, it was so... It's something that I dealt with less while I was losing weight. And I would say have dealt with more after the fact and have been maintaining my weight. Because for me, body image is something like my approach to dealing with my own body image issues. And for the people that I work with is I, again, I use that approach of pulling yourself out of it, of just, for me, the body image issue has taken so much of my thought and energy and like coming from this whole weight loss, it's like, it feels so superficial and silly for me getting to this point in my life to define myself by my physical appearance. It's something I won't allow myself to do because I feel like through my weight loss and everything that it has led to becoming, you know, fully embodying this sentient emotional being and understanding myself in a spiritual sense and just expanding my definition of who I am and what I am to dwindle it down to a number or a size is just so, it's silly. You know, it's small. That's kind of the way that I think about body image is I know who I am and it's not what I look like. I love that. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And I, I think body image is like a lifelong journey because our bodies are always changing, you know, no matter what. 100%. And, you know, I had a similar experience. I lost a ton of weight, you know, eight, nine years ago, 100 pounds, you know, plus. And 
after I lost all weight, looked in for that mirror. I'm like, what do you mean? You still didn't have a six pack and now you have to deal with the skin. Right. And you know, that was a whole, a whole new thing to learn how to deal with and accept. Exactly. So if you were to give parting words to, to this conversation and help somebody who was, you know, just getting started on their journey, what would you tell them? Where should they start? Yeah. A few things that I would love to say is, well, first of all, it's not your fault and there's nothing wrong with you. I think that is so abundantly important that anyone who's listening to this, who's struggling with their weight or food or eating or body image, it's not your fault and there's nothing wrong with you. The other thing I want to say is if the biggest problem that you have with food is that you're an emotional eater, it's not a problem that you have with food. It's a question about how you're coping with your emotions. Another thing I will say is that because the hunger isn't physical doesn't mean it's not real. It just means it can't be satiated with food. So everything that I want to say is really about understanding yourself and just being really curious about how did you get here to begin with? Because if we're struggling with food and eating and our body and our weight and all these things, if we're struggling in this area, it's not the problem, it's the solution. And if we can just start there and drop the shame and the guilt and the fear and the embarrassment it's okay to be where you are and just understand this is a solution. This is the way that you're coping. This is a way that you're keeping yourself safe. A lot of us are doing it. A lot of us have done it. And to go the route of understanding yourself as a mental, emotional, spiritual human versus a physical body. And I think the best place to start in a really tangible way is mindful eating So are you present when you're eating? What are some of the emotions and thoughts that are coming up while you're at the table or, you know, in the fridge or whatever it is at midnight? Again, totally been in all those places. But thinking more about the thoughts and the feelings than the food on the table. And every, like, I'm accessible to anyone who's listening to this, who wants to talk more about it. Email me, you know, I'll send you all of my information, but email me, just come to my website, find me on Instagram, whatever it is, like, feel free to ask me anything. I'm here for this. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And we'll make sure to include all your information in the show notes. So your website, lisaschlossberg.com. Yeah, lisaschlossberg.com. Okay, and we'll, we'll, great. We'll make sure to include all that information in the show notes, so don't worry. Lisa, hey, it's been great having this conversation with you. You're really, uh, you're an inspiration to all of us. And thank you so much for joining the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they could use some support, please share this episode with them. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or sign up to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Take care, be well, and feel full.